You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast, your podcast for all things Grimdark. I am your host, writer, blogger, skilled Will of Fortune player, and resident Grimdork, Rob Matheny. And I am Philip, probably better at Will of Fortune than Rob Overby. And it's episode number nine, our interview with Peter Newman. So glad to have him on the show. He is the author of The Vagrant, and he is the producer of the Hugo-nominated podcast, Tea and Jeopardy, husband of author Emma Newman, and a professional firewalker, and just an all-around awesome guy. Just quite a gentleman. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Peter Newman was fantastic guest, you know, super swell guy. Nice to talk to about nerdy stuff also. He's definitely one of us, so to speak. Google gobble, Google gobble. One of us. <laughs> Actually, the first guy I've ever talked to who's been in London, like I've talked to people from England before, but I've never actually talked to somebody in London. So I think we're getting most of our continents covered. I think we've got Europe, we've got Asia, uh, we've got Dave DeBerg coming up. He's from Africa. So it's kind of an international effort at this point. The grimness has gone international. So <laughs> we are uh, cloaking the globe in darkness as, as we speak. <laughs> Yeah, Antarctica, I don't think we're ever going to get to. <laughs> I've had a chance to read the beginning of The Vagrant. It is an awesome book. It just came out uh, in April, so I'm enjoying it. And Phil, you're listening to the audiobook right now, is that right? Yes, this is actually the first Audible novel that I've listened to. So it's been a great uh, listen so far. Uh, I don't normally listen to audiobooks, but I think this story works really well in the audio format as well as the written format. Yeah, I'm really loving it so far, and I'm looking forward to uh, finishing it up. I think it's 13 hours long, so that's going to be a lot of uh, me sitting and enjoying some story time in the evenings. Well, it was great to have Peter on the show. He's just a just a fantastic guy. Um, be sure to check out his podcast, Tea in Jeopardy, and uh, you can check out his blog at runpetewright.com as well. But we hope you enjoy the interview, and be sure to stick around after the interview. We'll come back, and we will wrap things up. Peter Newman, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. We talked about the Grim Gathering event happened uh, this past April. We talked about the event in uh, episode one. It was very, it was a very cool event uh, with the big hitters of Grim Dark. You had uh, Mark Lawrence, Joe Abercrombie, uh, Peter V. Brett, and then you had the new guy, Peter <laughs> Newman. So we are thrilled and honored to have you uh, be a part of our show today. You are the author of the uh, brand new novel, The Vagrant, from Harper Voyager. And so we have read the book. Uh, well, I, I read the intro. I had the first uh, four chapters down. I think Philip got the fourth chapter, first chapters in as well. We haven't had a chance to pick up the full book yet. But what I've read of it, I absolutely love, man. I picked up I, – I started reading it, and I did not stop the, the entire time. I was immediately hooked. Um, it's got a great premise with angels and demons and post-apocalypse. It's got a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of fantasy, and some grimdark in there too. So it is – an awesome read so far, and I cannot wait to pick up my own copy and and read it, and then leave a, uh, a high ranking review on Amazon after I've read it and and purchased it. So, uh, well done, man. For for anybody who hasn't had a chance to uh, peek into the realm of the Vagrant just yet, could you give our listeners kind of an idea what the book is, is about? 
Yeah, um, so I've got a couple of sort of different pitches that I'd, I'd use at this point. Uh, a, a quick way, I suppose, is to think about a man carrying humanity's last hope across a far future post-demon apocalypse landscape with a baby and a goat as companions. <laughs> and another way to put it, I guess, is how you deal with the demonic apocalypse if you're a single parent. So yeah, it's, but I, I think as you said beautifully in, in your summing up, I think at its heart it's a fantasy story, but it's also got elements of science fiction in there, elements of dystopia. It is a bit grimdark as well, in that some really quite horrible things happen. <laughs> in it and it's a very dark world you know and a lot of bad things happen to people quite a lot having said that i also think there's a little bit of hope in there too perhaps but i'll leave you to see you know what you think when you read the rest of it something interesting in the, about the grim dark aspect of the story is that you mentioned at the grim gathering about two different kinds of grim dark uh, <laughs> out of the bin grim dark and I suppose in the bin, grimdark. Obviously, uh, we think this is out of the bin, grimdark, and that it's you know not standard kind of uh, story. It's very uniquely told and very interesting. Who are some other authors that you think may qualify as out of the bin, grimdark, and and that they're not really doing sort of standard blood and guts and those kind of things. Yeah, so just before I answer that question, I just want to qualify for those people who weren't at the Grim Gathering kind of exactly what I meant there. Um, so when, I, when I'm talking about in the bin grimdark, I'm really talking about people that are just reveling in misery and gore for the sake of it. And where I'm talking about out of the bin grimdark, I think I'm talking about fantasy normally, where it's a much grittier world where there isn't uh, an all-powerful force that's going to make everything better at the end. So in a lot of, if you like, traditional fantasy, the hero is quite often destined to succeed. There is a chosen one, there is a prophecy, or there is some kind of benevolent force of good that is supporting the hero in their quest. Uh, whereas in Grimdark, there are no guarantees. And in fact, in, in a lot of Grimdark, there aren't even any actual standard heroes. So if I'm talking about out of the bin, i.e. good Grimdark, then I would say think about someone like Jabba Crombie, where a lot of his characters are very compelling, but they're also very flawed and in some cases downright evil. Um, but they're also on all sides of conflict. So you don't have a kind of a bunch of people on one side of the line wearing bright colours, being lovely to each other and heroic. And then a bunch of people on the other side of the line wearing dark colours, just being horrible for the sake of it. You know, in, in his books, there are just people. And often there are good people on both sides and bad people on both sides. And it's that kind of thing, I suppose, is what I mean. So that would be my, that would be my uh, my answer to that. Really, I don't like kind of gore or suffering or misery for the sake of it, but I do like it when it's got a purpose. If it's saying something interesting or making for a very tense story. Okay, would you qualify the vagrant as kind of a grey character, or is he more of like a traditional hero in, in a sense? Well, that's interesting that you asked that question. And I think that's, I have to be careful what I say here, because I think one of the things about the vagrant is the mystery of who the vagrant is and what the vagrant is like. For those who don't know, the vagrant himself doesn't speak. He's silent through the book. And I also decided when I was writing the book that I wouldn't give you access to his inner thoughts. So one of the things about the vagrant is you judge the vagrant based on what he does. 
and he is often presented with quite difficult choices to make and decisions and sometimes he gets involved in things sometimes he turns his back on things uh, for various reasons and it's for the readers to judge really what they think of him having said all of that i would say that in some ways i think because the world is so dark and is so relentless that the vagrant is more of a hero than you might find in a lot of grimdark in that most of the other characters in the world are much worse as entities than the vagrant is you know he's pretty good by comparison would you say the baby and the goat are gray characters <laughs> or are they uh, <laughs> well how would you describe the baby and the goat <laughs> I don't think the goat is very grey. I think the goat is, is out and out pretty grimdark as goats go. Oh, okay. um, grimdark goat. A grimdark goat, yeah. The goat is pretty badass, if I say so myself. I mean, the baby has a, a personality that you see more of as the book goes on. But the baby is not a grimdark baby. The baby does not rip off people's heads or, you know, glory in the, in the suffering of others. It is essentially a baby um, in a very, very dark world. Uh, in fact, if anything, the baby offers a ray of hope, if you like, in that the baby at this stage, is something that has been not affected by the darkness of the world. Because if the thing about babies is their world is very small, you know, they really only are aware of things immediately around them. So they're not worn down by life in the way that a lot of the adults are. And in a slightly different way, although the goat is pretty nasty, whereas a lot of the humans in the book have been broken by what's happened, or are very desperate and savage and pretty horrible, the goat remains unbroken by what's happened because it's a goat and it just doesn't give a shit really it's it's quite happy to carry on living as it always has done so in an odd kind of way both the baby and the goat represent something more hopeful or an ability to endure or survive yeah definitely uh, enjoy the uh, aspect of, of the story so far how it's written in present tense uh, you know mm-hmm. most fantasy is not present tense it's usually that that third person or third person omniscient or third person limited so I was a little apprehensive to begin with, but man, after just like the first page, the style just draws me right in to where everything is just so immediate. So good on you for implementing that. And I really like the elements of not having a, a protagonist that speaks and uh, um, just a lot of cool elements in this book that just, uh, again, put it over the top as far as I'm concerned. And, and again, looking forward to digging in and finishing it out. Now, just a couple of fanboy questions I have for for you as well. Now, we had uh, Michael R. Fletcher on a couple episodes ago talking about uh, Beyond Redemption. He's also a Harper Voyager author, and his book just came out, whereas you, your book has been out for a couple of months. So what's the experience been like for you th- this two months after the release? You know, you can walk into any major bookstore and you can see your book on the shelves. There's Peter Newman on the spine of the book. What's the experience been like for you? It's been pretty wonderful, to be honest with you. I, th- I suppose The Grim Gathering was one of the first really big eye-openers for me because when I went into the Waterstones where it was being held and this is before everyone came in they had these four signing desks set up with a copy of our book on each desk and there was like like you said before you know all these really well-established big name fancy authors who you know I've read and been like wow you know these guys are amazing and then my table next to theirs was just a real sort of standout moment for me really and since then yeah it's been it has been just wonderful One of the things, I went into town recently with my son, and he gets really excited when he sees my book or my wife's book on a shelf, you know. He'll go off and try and find it, (laughs) because it's like, and then he gets, he's like, look, look, it's there. And that is just endlessly beautiful. The other thing, I suppose, is, is the internet is just gorgeous. Obviously, the book has been out, and one of the things that is always, I say always, one of the things that I was both looking forward to, but also terrified of, 
was the fact that it was going to be out in the world. So people were going to review it and they were going to read it and they were going to have opinions on it. And of course, with the internet being the internet, there's a wide variety of opinions on everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and in this age we live in, it's very easy these days for people to talk to you very directly about whether they like the book or not. And so I was a bit apprehensive, to be honest, about what was going to happen. But I have to say, a majority of the reviews have been absolutely fabulous, you know, really warm. I will never get tired of people saying nice things about my work ever. I can promise you that right now. <laughs> and, and if someone drops by on Twitter and says, you know, they're really excited or the book's arrived or they've read it or something, I mean, that just makes my day every time. So that has been wonderful. And it's sort of extended things. There was a review came up yesterday at Reading Machine that, that posted it. Absolutely wonderful review. And that's, you know, a couple months afterwards. And again, I was just immediately skipping around the house. Um, <laughs> delighted. So, yeah, no, it, it's literally dream come true. Super wonderful. There's obviously the, the launch itself is kind of the big buzz, I suppose. And then it, and you get a brief moment of feeling super special. And then, unfortunately, life goes back to normal and, you know, the grass still has to be cut. Dishes still need to be washed and all that kind of business. But it's, it's great. And, you know, coming on things like this, I mean, a, a year ago, two years ago, I would not have believed it, you know, where people want to interview you or talk to you or write things about you. It's just, yeah, it's amazing. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear it's been such a pleasant experience. And, uh, and it, so it hasn't been fun integrating with all these new fans, this new fan base online. Yeah, it's just been brilliant. And people, it is such a gift, you know, that someone takes some time out of their day to write a nice review of your book or to say something nice to you about what they've read. And the thought that that work is being read by those people is, is I don't know, is, is, is out there. It's just an amazing thing. So, yeah, I just, I am living the dream and I just hope the dream goes on for as long as possible, <laughs> I suppose, is the thing now. I think we both think that uh, you'll be cranking out the hits for foreseeable future so we were both really impressed so um, oh thank you i think uh you'll head into the stratosphere and we'll be hearing a lot more from you well that would be wonderful i it'd be really nice if in you know next year or or whenever i'd be back on the show and we'd laugh about this say how wonderful everything is <laughs> be great with it <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Maybe we'll be in attendance for Grim Gathering 37 or something like that. Yes, you can absolutely. They'll wheel me out. <laughs> <laughs> now, were there any That's surprises great. from the release of the book? Anything that didn't go as planned? Any, anything that popped up that you didn't expect? Oh, that's a good question. I probably blank a lot of the bad things from my memory, you know, <laughs> in order to be happy. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. I don't know if I knew exactly what to expect, if you know what I mean. Then there's a, one thing which does strike me is when I was before I got my publishing deal for those people who are you know they've written a book and maybe they got it ready and they've had like test readers read it and all that kind of business and they've put it out on submission there is a lot of waiting that goes on around that time you know huge amounts of waiting and rejections and and then maybe you get to the next step of the process and then you're waiting again and so forth and one thing that I I guess I naively thought was that once I got my book deal that would end well the truth is actually you just go back into waiting you're just waiting for different things. So you might be waiting to hear back on edits, or you might be waiting to hear back on cover stuff, or you might be waiting to hear back on events, or sales figures, or reviews, or things like that. So one thing that, that I guess I wasn't expecting was the amount of waiting that goes on. So I, I don't know how this works in the kind of US system, but I think this, it would apply the same way. So when you're, when you're in school and you're doing your... So for us, the kind of ex, your, your standard exams, your GCSEs that you take around kind of 16, 17, 
they're like everything you know that they fill your world but then when you've done those exams you have this kind of celebration that's fantastic but then there's either more exams to go and take the next stage of education or the next job to look for or whatever so I suppose that's the other thing as well that you're always thinking about the next thing you know there's a moment of celebration but then it's like oh well that's all great but what about the next book what about the next bit and bob and so forth so um, and the sense I have for people who've been on the, the writing scene for a long time is that just never changes. You're, you never think, well, I mean, I say that I probably if you're Stephen King, it might be different. But, <laughs> you know, for most people, I think you always got that. Well, will I be able to is, have I peaked now or will I be able to make a better book? Will people still want to read something else? That kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that's one thing that surprised me in a way. But for all of that, I would not change it for the world. I totally love writing and I totally love I just all of it really. And like, you know, coming on here and you guys saying nice things to me, it's like being a dog on your back with people tickling your belly. It's just like this. <laughs> good boy, good boy. <laughs> exactly. I am here. You, you guys just carry on. I'll be here all day. That's fine. I wanted to ask some about one aspect of writing that I, I think most writers enjoy a lot uh, is the world building aspect. One thing that you have is a lot of kind of uh, demonic presence. I know uh, at the beginning there's, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler because it's at the very beginning. You're anti-spoiler from what I've, from what I've heard in uh, another I, interview. Yeah, I, I am anti-spoiler. I mean, I, I think as well, probably I need to get over myself a bit. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think what it is, is that when I watch a film, or read a book or something normally the creator of that thing has spent a lot of time carefully organizing it all so you get information in a certain flow so it has its most impact and it always bugs me when someone just kind of tells you and then it isn't so special when you experience it in the real thing having mm. said all that why don't you go for it and uh, <laughs> and if it's spoilerish i'll just cry loudly in the background <laughs> well um i don't want you to cry but um <laughs> I'm going to go go for it. So there's basically like a demon dog at the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. The way you describe it is very disturbing and interesting. I know a lot of writers are heavily inspired by mythology. Were you influenced when you were creating these monsters and stuff by mythology? Or was it more just like right out of your head, just screwed up shit <laughs> that just popped into your head? Well, I'd say it's a bit of both. It is stuff that comes out of my head, my, my screwed up head, if you like. But of course, what's gone into my head to make all of these ideas is this weird mashup mess of stuff. So I love things like the Greek myths and the Norse myths. And really, most actually ancient myths are really fascinating. I love all of those old stories and the way they work. And I think there is something of that tone sometimes in the book, that kind of slightly mythical or at least that's something I was hoping to get, whether, <laughs> whether I got it or not, it's another matter. But. So that there's that on the one side. And then there's also all just the stuff that I experienced growing up. So I spent, I was going to say wasted, but that's not fair. I spent a lot of my time playing computer games as a kid, and I still do. I spent a lot of my time role-playing. I spend regrettably less time role-playing now, but I still do it. And watching lots of crazy films and science fiction and fantasy and anime and all that kind of stuff and graphic novels. And I think it all kind of mulches together in some way so yeah part of it is mythical but i mean also things like final fantasy and warhammer have, have definitely been uh, an influence in there and a whole kind of mass of films and games and other stuff i mean really when i've talked about it in other places it was a weird thing in that the story of the vagrant was very much there but in the kind of depths of my 
the kind of the darkest depths of my brain and i just had to kind of descend into that weird darkness and and unearth it it was all there and i knew when i got it right but i didn't always know exactly what it was until i got it so there's a bit of experimentation that went on and interesting you know you mentioned earlier about the present tense when i very first started writing the vagrant i wrote it in the past tense and then i kept slipping into the present tense and i thought at the time like oh this is because i'm not very good at staying in tense because i'm a newbie author and then i realized what it was was that actually it was the right voice was the present tense and i had to just find it when i was writing so it wasn't a kind of instant thing but it was very rapidly it was in the first few scenes that, that was starting to happen and then i realized actually no this is all present tense and stuck with it that way and then there are a lot of cool things you can do when you have a protagonist who doesn't speak i mean there's a lot of different elements you need to incorporate into your writing in order to compensate for that lack of dialogue yeah absolutely Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So pick up, you know, most books from your shelf that are genre books and read them. And what you'll find is there's a, a lot of dialogue in there. And there's also a lot of time where we're in the protagonist's head. We're hearing their thoughts as they interact with things. So if you take that away, what you have then is a real focus on, well, OK, what is the character doing? And what's the descriptions around their actions as well? So it really puts the focus on the action, which I like. But yeah, it's challenging. And it means that actually you, you move through things in some ways much faster than you might because people aren't standing around chatting all the time and they're not stopping to reflect on things internally. You don't get any of that. You might get the fact the vagrant has stopped and is looking meaningfully into the distance for a line or two. And that's it. <laughs> Whereas that in another book might be two, three paragraphs of a character going, well, I've seen all these things. What does it mean? Oh, it might mean this. It might mean that and so on. So, yeah, it was very challenging. And the other thing, as I mentioned, is that the vagrant's primary companions, particularly early in the book, are a baby and a goat. So there's limited conversation there as well. Not a lot of in-depth uh, conversations taking place, at least. Well, indeed. Having said all of that, there are certain scenes that have the POV from the demon's position. And with the demons, I do take you into their inner thoughts. You get a more kind of detailed, if you like, sense of their world. And I did that partly because the demons are so weird you know, they're not your traditional pitchfork and brimstone demons. They're more alien than that. And my feeling was that for the reader to have any chance of really getting any sense of you know, what was going on with them, that I wanted to give more with them. My favorite kind of demon is like the ones with goat heads. So I think it would be cool if like your goat, the goat turned into a big, big demon. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the goat is plenty evil enough without... <laughs> Into a demon, but I'll leave you to discover that uh, and yourself. But hey, who knows? Who knows? Maybe book 27 in the series will be Demon Goat. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask a little bit about uh, your love of computer games. You know, there are a lot of silent protagonists in, in some computer games or video games. I believe the main character from Chrono Trigger, which is a big uh, Square Soft, was, you know, Final Fantasy creator. Mm -hmm. That was a person that didn't talk and the player could kind of project themselves onto that character. Yeah. Who are some uh, other silent protagonists that you've enjoyed in, in games or in any other kind of media? Oh, that's a fab question. You know, and it, it surprises me that I haven't been asked that before. And also suddenly makes me think, if only I'd made a list. But all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're coming from. I think as well in computer games, it's slightly different in that you're, as you say, you can just project on, but you're controlling the actions of the character. So even if they don't speak, they still feel like they're doing what you want them to do. 
I mean, of course, a lot of the early computer game characters just didn't speak at all, because in a lot of early computer games, there wasn't much speech. You might get some text dialogue, and that would be about it. This might be a slight tangent, but that pops into my head is the Dragon Age games. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah, you're a huge fan, right? Yeah, I, I am. I mean, I, I like some of the series more than others. But Dragon Age Origins, for example, although your character had dialogue, it was text dialogue only. And the interesting effect of that was I didn't really feel like my character in that had a voice. I didn't feel I had much of a personality because there was no audio quality to it. Whereas the companions in Origins that you travel with felt extremely developed. They felt very real. So it was really weird. It felt like you were this sort of slightly nothingy person traveling with these really interesting characters. Whereas in Dragon Age 2, they tried to put a voice on them, a bit like they did with the Mass Effects. But whereas in, say, the Mass Effect games, I, I mean, I love Shepard. And I know everyone has yeah. their own Shepard, but my Shepard was awesome. I'm just dropping that in there. And, Mine too. Uh, and yeah, well, of course. But he or she, in the case of those who played Femsheps, had felt like a real person in that game. Even though they all potentially looked a bit different. But I don't know, there was something about about it that was both focused enough but also broad enough to take on, which I really liked. So I'm probably just babbling on now about Bioware games because I love them. But <laughs> to come back to your question. Oh, uh, so someone who is not silent exactly, but who doesn't often speak is Samurai Jack. If you've seen the Samurai Jack cartoons. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Gindy Tartofsky. Yes, Gindy, yeah, Tarkovsky, yeah. Where, again, a lot of that kind of stuff was focused on, on action and moments and taking its time to tell the story. And although Jack does speak sometimes, a lot of the time he doesn't. A lot of the time we're with him as he kind of grunts and groans across the landscape or he has very characterful eyes, Samurai Jack. So that was a thing. Films by uh, things like The Seven Samurai, where, again, the characters speak, but a lot of it is told visually rather than falling back on dialogue and those kind of things. And I guess the things like The Man With No Name the Clint Eastwood character, who, again, he speaks, but it's minimal dialogue. And you get long periods of time where he's not speaking. Those kind of things definitely all struck me. But I am certain I'll come away from this conversation and immediately remember like 50 computer games <laughs> with very kind of expressive silent protagonists. Because some of those... Uh, oh, Ico. There we go. Have you played Ico? Ico. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He runs around and with the girl and yes. escorts her around. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, back in the, was it the 90s that came yeah, out? We, or we are time traveling a little bit here, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was a game which was, again, really beautifully kind of told using very little dialogue. You know, it was all yeah, yeah. just the way they would react to things or the way they would sometimes hold each other's hands or sigh or things like that were just so beautifully done. I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, and Shadow of Colossus is the same also. The, exactly. The, yeah, there's, there's the horse and him, and that's pretty much it. And then there's like a voice from heaven or something that's like... Rah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <whatever. laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, the Colossi themselves were also very characterful. Yeah, yeah. And again, didn't speak. So that's the... Oh, I'm glad I came up with at least one computer game example. <laughs> But, yeah, we're going to work on sending out our questions uh, a little more in advance for uh, future guests. <laughs> oh, no, no, they should be made to suffer too, surely. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should spring on. In fact, preferably when they're tired and, and not ready. That would be even better. <laughs> Did you beat Dragon Age Inquisition? Yeah, I, uh, I, so I've played it through once on normal. And now I'm playing it through on hard. I don't know if I'll play Inquisition on the top level or not. I'm, I'm torn. Uh, but certainly Mass Effect 2, for example, which is my favourite of the Mass Effect games, I did that on every difficulty, and I sort of 
took it up as I went. So particularly in Mass Effect, uh, and again, of all of them, particularly in Mass Effect 2, I felt like if you played it with a different response, it genuinely felt like a different experience. Whereas, say, in Dragon Age 2, I felt like that was very much an illusion. So when you did it one way, it was like, wow, what would happen if I did it the opposite way? And then when you did it the opposite way, it was like, oh, nothing. <laughs> it would just be exactly <laughs> the same. And that was extremely frustrating for me. Yeah, that's the Mass Effect uh, had kind of a controversy you know, with the whole ending thing. It was like, uh, what color do you want your explosion or whatever? It's like, yeah, do you want I... the explosion red or green or blue or something? I suppose. I've, I've got mixed feelings about that. I mean, obviously, they expanded the ending bit as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I would have liked more of your individual choices to be seen to be making an impact, perhaps, than they did. But I also feel that when people were kind of writing to complain... I don't know, or, or kind of demanding that it was changed. I felt like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, it's there. They have some artistic license to create. You know, we might not like it, and that's our right to, to voice that. But I don't think we necessarily have a right to demand they change it. I mean, I can't imagine people writing to, I don't know, an author. Let's, I mean, I've mentioned Joe Abercrombie, but let's, you know, or Peter B. Brett or Mark Lawrence or any of them, really, or Robin Hobb or, or whoever, and saying, we demand you change the ending of your book. I mean, it just seems ridiculous. <laughs> Well, I mean, yet, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, spoiler, <laughs> he <laughs> killed, killed off uh, Sherlock Holmes at one point, and uh, there was such outrage that the fans were like, no, you cannot kill Sherlock, and he actually brought him back, so that yeah. that was kind of a, you know, that doesn't happen very often, but I think that's not a good precedent to set where fans outcry about something and then the the artist says oh okay well i'll change it because you told me to i suspect that was also partly the publisher as much as the fans they said uh <laughs> yeah yeah there's still a real large truckload of money to be made here and <laughs> you're not derailing our truck <laughs> so put it back <laughs> on the road but i agree i also think you know sometimes stories have a point where they should end I think that's also true with TV shows, you know, that sometimes things around about season three have peaked because the stories that the writers originally had, and often actually the original team of writers, because they've probably gone by season four, have come to a close. Those characters have gone on their journey and they've kind of done their interesting stuff. And then what's left, you can kind of rehash those stories or you can, I don't know, it sort of feels like this is the end point and then they flog it for another <laughs> two or three seasons. Uh, that's not always true, but I, I often feel that way with these things. Don't hold me to that. If someone brings a dump truck of money to my house, I'll probably flip over pretty <laughs> fast. But you know, I like to think that when the story is done, I'll stop telling the story you know, and move on to something else, and that there's a kind of an integrity in that. Speaking of stories that have uh, triggered an angry fan response, have you been into uh, Game of Thrones this season? Or? Yeah, I've, I've watched, I'm up to date on the, the TV show, and I've also read, I'm up to date on the books. Of course, one of the things about being in the UK is that you guys get to see it normally the day before us. So I'm glad I'm up to date on the books because Twitter is a bit of a minefield. But because I've read it, I don't mind so much. But otherwise, it's, it's really painful. I feel for anyone who's just watching the TV show first. Is there any other related media that, uh, that you're into right now besides uh, you know, Game of Thrones? Uh, anything else cool that you're watching, listening to, or reading that you think uh, our, our listeners uh, should be keen on? Well, I, I watched the Daredevil Netflix show recently which I think is fabulous. I mean, it's really top-notch kind of storytelling. And the Kingpin is just spot-on, brilliant and amazing. When you mention your audience, you know, and I'm thinking of Grimdark, I think that Daredevil, because obviously the Marvel Universe stuff has generally been pretty light so far. 
So yeah. pretty fluffy compared to DC. And this, I felt, was like them going, oh, yeah, well, watch this, DC. We can be way darker than you. So that was, that was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. And my only concern in some ways is that I feel that's told the Daredevil story so well. I'm not sure I want to watch anymore in a way. We'll see. But I just, I, my concern would be it was so good that it would be very hard for them to maintain that quality through. Because the character goes on such a journey. And, well, lots of the characters do across the season. Uh, other things, well, let me tell you something that most of, I don't want to, to, to judge, but the, perhaps the least grimdark thing in the world that I've started watching recently, which is Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is a totally <laughs> beautiful, lovely show. There's very little grim in it at all. There is a, a very wonderful female lead who's absolutely fabulous. It's partly about solving murder, but it's also about looking fabulous and about um, will characters get together or not. <laughs> so your audience may not like it, but I love it. Uh, well, what it's else? It's got murder in the title, though. It so does have murder. murder. Some, look, I, you're guaranteed that at least one person will die every episode. All right. But you could be pretty sure it won't be any of the main cast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, you know, it's a nice show. It's like if you're feeling burnt out from watching Game of Thrones, go and watch this. If the thought of your hero dying sends you into the shakes, go and watch this for a few episodes, and then you'll feel ready again to go back into that dark world and, and take stuff on. It's not even grim. It's just light. It's fluffy light. It's, it's, it's kind of fabulous light, I guess, is how I describe it. Uh, so what else? Um, you see, I only got into Robin Hobb last year, as in I'd never read any Robin Hobb before. You mentioned about fanboying earlier. Uh, I, I just... Whenever I get a chance to say how wonderful Robin Hobb is, I have to take it because I think her books, you know, and they can be quite tough going at times in terms of the terrible things that happen to good people. But for characterization and tension and everything else, I just think she's astonishing, frankly. I've only read the first trilogy, the Farseer trilogy, and I sort of, I portion them out. You know, it's a bit like if I have cheap chocolate, I'll kind of binge it, you know, pretty quickly. But if I have super fancy chocolate that's really rich, I kind of have to eat one and then just like take a moment to savor that experience before I have the next one, which is kind of how I approach Robin Hobb's books. That's how I am with uh, Game of Thrones is that I don't typically like to binge watch them because I want to kind of stretch it out. Mm. But yeah, Robin Hobb is one that has been on my radar for a while. And uh, I I think I have one of her books. I, I pretty much have one book by every fantasy writer that exists. And uh, it's here somewhere. So based on your recommendation, I'll dig it up and give it a look-see. Well, you I hope you enjoy it. blogs about your thoughts on, the Robin, on Robin Hobb as well, too, right, Peter? That is absolutely true. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to call them reviews because they're not. They're mainly just fanboy waving. I mean, they're pretty much like, <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> I occasionally pause to think, why, why might this be wonderful? And maybe I should think about that. But I think it's a tricky thing. You know, some authors do do lots of reviews and I tend to do more like celebrations, you know. I will rate things on Goodreads occasionally that I've read and I will, if something, if I really love something, I'll certainly talk about it online, but I'm a little bit cautious of of kind of full on reviews myself. I also think reviewing is an art. I think good reviews are really hard to do. I don't feel it's an art I've mastered yet. But yeah, I take my hats off to people that can do really kind of insightful reviews that don't spoil too much, but also give you a good flavor of the book or the film or whatever it is. And I think that takes real skill and be entertaining, you know, as well. Yeah, I've experienced some of my first reviews. Of course, I'm a I'm a small fry. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great to sort of wow, they actually got what I was going for. That's cool. You know, anytime I get a review, I want to 
talk about it with people, but then I've heard like the etiquette is like, don't talk about reviews. What's your approach to reviews? You you share them with everybody anytime you get a good one or do you just yes. let them exist? Or Well, it depends. I try, I'm kind of wary of going on to, if you like, looking at, say, all of my Goodreads reviews or all of my Amazon reviews. I tend to leave those just to exist because yeah. it's very difficult to look at them in isolation or, you know, I'd have to have someone like vet the reviews for me because I, I'd be wary of, you know, breaking my heart 50 times by accident, you know, because <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to kind of come across. People sometimes will tweet me reviews they've done, and nine oh. times out of ten, they're positive if they bother to include me in a review. There are some people that will at you with a terrible review, but they're, luckily, they're not many of them. You know, and if someone wants to do a terrible review of my book, that's absolutely fine, but please don't come and tell me about it. I'm quite happy to know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I will certainly share, you know, reviews, and some of the reviews are just beautiful things, you know, and they make me very happy, so I generally do run around waving them about online going, look, look, everyone. <laughs> but so that that's i guess that's my my quick policy is if it's a good review then i will share it and i will generally thank the reviewer involved if it is a review that is all right then i probably won't share it i don't want to be the guy that's kind of online streams is just relentless sharing of stuff about themselves because it just seems a bit <laughs> i don't know I, I think well if that i wouldn't want to listen to that person so why would someone listen to me if i do that all the time so i try not to do that too much but if it's a good review i will if a reviewer has said something about my book that i disagree with or something that i feel is incorrect or is offensive that's not my place i don't feel to talk to them about that actually yeah. And that I feel like once the book goes out there, it's not mine anymore, it's yours. And interestingly, you know, we were talking earlier with The Vagrant that there's a fair bit of room for projection onto The Vagrant. And I've had some quite different responses to what people think The Vagrant is like. You know, some people really like him, some people don't really like him and, and have different views about why that is. And that's cool, that's up to them. You know, it's one of the things I kind of wanted to happen was for people to have that bit of room for interpretation. So I kind of feel like The uh, Vagrant, to me, this is my projection. This is also connected to me being in Japan. He kind of feels like a Ronin in a way. Like mm -hmm. he's like a samurai without a master, kind of wandering, mm -hmm. wandering and helping people as he goes, kind of thing. Like that's kind of the vibe I've got. Yeah, that's certainly something that I was going for a flavor of that in there, definitely. Um, but so. Hooray. <laughs> Glad you <laughs> but, but also, you know, going back to the, the thing about reviews, personally, I'm no expert. This is no kind of edict. This is just my view. But I don't feel it's the place of the author to kind of, I don't know, argue with reviewers or descend from on high to give some kind of opinion. I feel like, well, you know, reviewers can review things. Uh, other readers can talk to reviewers about the review and agree or disagree as they want to. And that's fine. But I almost feel there's something a little bit creepy uh, you know, imagine if you were chatting to your friend about TV you saw the other day and the writers of that show were at your window staring <laughs> through the glass at you, you know, occasionally shaking their heads or nodding. I mean, like, oh, I don't fancy that at all. So, <laughs> you know, if people come to me to talk about the thing, I'm very happy to chat, but I leave that to them because it, we've all seen the horror stories where authors have got involved. Oh, God. And you see those things, <laughs> those comment streams that run to like 500 <laughs> comments and you just think... That could be me. That could be there, me there. I, I do not want to be that person. I'm stepping back from that, you know. There's almost part of me that I want to make up a new name and just do that, just to see what it would feel like to just be universally reviled and just... Uh, 
witch the hunted thing, or whatever. The thing is, in this day and age, there's always the chance that someone would suss you out and say, actually, that's Phil. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes. Phil. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's not Bobby127. That's Phil. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Even worse, that then go, that would be all over the internet. You know, you'd probably get onto BuzzFeed or io9 or something, you know, with that level of tragedy <laughs> going on. So. Okay, I'll nix that idea now. I, I would, <laughs> for what it's worth. However, in your mind, however awesome that would be, and it might be awesome for a time, there's just the risk is too high. I would, I would, I would kill that idea. Well, you talked a little bit about it being creepy for like a writer to be staring through the window, uh, kind of. <laughs> I did something mildly creepy, I guess. I guess it's not that creepy. <laughs> Is this confession time? <laughs> it's not that creepy. But I, I stalked your Goodreads page and uh, looked at some books you were reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's a little creepy. It's not. I guess it's not so creepy. But anyway, um, I noticed you were reading the Monster Manual for Dungeons & Dragons. And that made me think, like, what monster from Dungeons & Dragons could give the Vagrant a run for his money? You know, back in the day, I used to have like little fights with my friends where like, okay, I'm going to be a beholder and you're going to be a, a mind flayer and let's see who wins kind of thing. So I was interested, what, like, what monster do you think would be, you know, super challenging for him to fight? That's a great question, by the way. But before I answer it, it's not creepy what you just described. <laughs> I just wanted to, okay. to because because they're public platforms. So if someone puts, well, this is my opinion anyway, if someone is putting on a public platform what they're reading and what they're doing and they don't want someone else to go and read over it, then they should maybe not join Goodreads in the first place. That seems a dumb idea. So don't worry. I think, I think you have a certain license to look at public information someone's put up. I'm not shivering over on this end of the call. <laughs> You're okay. So the other thing I should say is my D&D monster knowledge is a little bit hazy for two reasons. One is that I've only started playing D&D again quite recently. This is a, a geek pride moment. I ran a third edition D&D game taking the players from 1st to 20th. Oh, wow. Nice. But I thank you. But <laughs> the only thing is the world had no monsters in it by and large. It was all human opponents. So there weren't like fancy races, really. There was just humans and humans in lots of different factions with different abilities and things. That's very um, grim dark. But I should, I should, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of that. But I should add, for anyone who is a GM who's running third ed, who's thinking about doing this, I would advise you not to do this. Because <laughs> if you run off the monster manual, obviously you can just pull level appropriate monsters and they're pretty much given to you. But if you're using human NPCs all the time, then every time you want to create appropriate enemies for the players, you've then got to design, like, when, when the players get to a high level anyway, you've got to design, like, 15th to 20th level characters. And that takes forever. That's really <laughs> miserable. So I would suggest not. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. So, yeah, I haven't used many high-level monsters, I guess, is, is my point there. And the reason I'm reading the Monster Manual is for a low-level campaign I'm about to start. So I haven't been looking at the really brutal stuff. So having covered all my bases... What I would say is uh, there's loads of monsters that I think would pretty much brutalize the vagrant. Uh, I mean, the, you know, if you, st- I mean, let's just take beholders as a standard. They've got so many like insta kills, you know, where the vagrant, he'd been making a lot of saving throws before he got through that <laughs> encounter. And for all of us who've played, you know, on your own, you're unlikely to get through something without fluffing at least one or two saves. So without a, a bunch of party members to kind of quickly turn him back from stone into flesh again or to resurrect him or whatever, he'd probably be in trouble. And any major dragon, obviously, is going to be a bit of a nightmare, I would think. Yeah. The Vagrant is sadly lacking in fire immunities. So I would say any of those really insane high-level monstrosities the Vagrant would struggle against. 
I'm not going to spoil it too much, but the Vagrant is very good at taking out certain kinds of monster, however. So I think, you know, he's, he's quite specialised in that sense. You know, if he's coming up against demons and things like that, then I'd say his odds go up quite high. But if we're talking really just monstrous level giants and dragons and, and beholders and stuff like that and, and mind flayers and things <laughs> with re- really brutal sonics, then, then maybe not so much. Just on the business end of the of the book series now, um, have you have you signed for for the trilogy? So the book deal is a, a duology or a two book deal, and the second book I'm literally just finishing the first round edits. I'm about a chapter away from so it's it's if you like it's already written. I had a look over it, etc. Uh, it went through a round of edits with my agent. It's gone through a round of edits with my editor and come back to me. I've nearly finished those. I imagine there'll be a little bit more editing to do and so forth. So there will definitely be a sequel, which will be out around April next year. It's a funny thing. When I started writing The Vagrant, it initially started as a piece of flash fiction. And then that rapidly became a serial and that rapidly became a novel. I'm very bad at writing short fiction. I tend to write long. <laughs> it's the same thing with, with role-playing games. I say, oh, I'll, I'll run this one off. And then it becomes <laughs> a six-month campaign or a, or a two-year campaign or something. Uh, so having written the second book, I certainly have ideas for a third. And I'm kind of making like heart eyes at my publisher <laughs> to see what will happen. But uh, yeah, watch this space. When I realized The Vagrant was a novel, I actually thought it was going to be a standalone novel. So The Vagrant tells a complete arc for The Vagrant. However, it's not like every door is shut in that world or even for those characters. But a story is told. And the second book whilst it is linked to the first and deals with the kind of legacy of the first, I also feel that is a complete arc in and of itself as well. People, when they've read the second book, may disagree. I think you could read the second book without having read the first. However, I think you'd lose some of the nuances. But in terms of you could pick it up, you would be put into that world, you would, you would go on journeys with those characters, and you, you would have a, an experience that would be complete. But yeah, The Vagrant is self-contained um, as a story. Because the world is as big as it is, and there is so much going on in it, it's not like it's done. And I guess that's also where we diverge between kind of traditional fantasy and grimdark in a way. In that, in traditional fantasy, often at the end of the story, evil has been vanquished, the kingdom is back in order, everybody is living happily, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and so it's done. Whereas in grimdark stories, because it is more of just a real world, if you like, that's in a fantasy setting... It's not just done. The world continues to tick. You know, all the loose ends are not tied up. You don't have a perfect resolution. You just have a resolution. So I think that applies to The Vagrant and also to the sequel. The world continues to turn and there are still some problems that will always be there and new problems that always come. Something that I've grown to appreciate more with some fantasy writers is is writing self-contained stories. I think some people, sometimes they get series fatigue, you know, if the Mm. series is super, super long. Joe Abercrombie is a good example of someone who did a trilogy and then he did a couple of standalone novels in the same world. Mm. I kind of like that approach of, you know, doing a self-contained novel, but then doing like a second novel that is also standalone, but takes place in the same world. I'm a big fan of that approach instead of kind of going with a interconnected series where maybe you have to read from book one and you can't start at book nine and then you'll be like, what the hell is happening or whatever. 
Yeah, I think there's pros and cons, aren't there? Because if you're with the same characters going through a long story, you end up with a really deep relationship with those characters that people often like. But I, yeah. I also feel, kind of going back to what I said earlier, there comes a point where you those characters have kind of gone on their journey, both kind of physical and also personal, and that you're ready to move on to new things. And the Joe Abercrombie example is a great one because that works on lots of levels. So you can read something like The Heroes as a standalone novel. And, you know, people should read The Heroes if they've not, because it's an astounding book, particularly in terms of pace and the way it's structured. It's, it's really brilliant. But the other thing is, is that there are characters in there who, if you have read the earlier trilogy or the uh, previous standalone book, you can appreciate where they are in The Heroes a lot more. You know, and yeah. there are nods to things in the past that you will get. But it's not essential. You don't have to have read it to get those things. So I think, I mean, that is exactly the kind of thing I'm aiming for in a way. I mean, I would hope that people would read The Vagrant first and then read before they read the second book. And I, I think that's probably the way they're made to be read. But I would still like it that if someone picked up the sequel, they wouldn't just feel completely lost. That there will be enough of a lead in and also enough of its own identity that it could stand on its own. So when you signed with Harper Voyager, did you sign for two books or did you sign for one? Yeah. They're like, this book is awesome. Okay, you signed for two. No, I signed for two. I signed for two. Can you give us any details on the super secret project that you've been doting about on uh, various interviews? You, you've got something going on, some, some sort of witch's brew in the Newman household that you're concocting, and I'm not sure what it is. Can it, Any idea? Any um, breadcrumbs? Shovel? Oh man, I, I, I could. I don't, would you have answer, to kill me? The answer, quickly, yeah, I would have to kill you, and I'm actually <laughs> very bad at killing people, so that would be awkward for all of us. You know, it would be a long, drawn-out process. I fumbled around trying to make it happen. Bring a spork. Yeah, I mean, it, it would. Oh, it would be messy. It would be horrible. Uh, so, so the quick answer is no. I can't. The longer, <laughs> the longer answer is. Very soon, I hope to be able to. I mean, it might be in a matter of a week or oh, two, wow. I would cool. be able to, uh, to say something. Um, there is something else going on. I am very excited about it, but I can't. I just cannot because I would get... I, I mentioned that I'm very bad at like, you know, harming other human beings. It's just not worth it for me. <laughs> There'd be too much pain and misery. So I, I'm going to have to say nothing, but watch this space. Announcements, announcements to come very soon. <laughs> on all fronts and i'm afraid i can't be more interesting or exciting than that but obviously <laughs> i feel i feel kind of bad as a human being if i didn't at least plug tea and jeopardy a little bit you know it's something else that i do uh, which is again it's not very grimdark exactly but if you want to see what happens when java crombie meets a unicorn it is the place to go <laughs> could you tell us about that a little bit the podcast do you know i'm so glad you asked me that let me let me tell you a bit of the podcast um so essentially it's an interview show where various interesting creative and cool people come to be interviewed uh, they're nine times out of ten they're writers and they're normally fantasy writers but it's not always the case uh, we've had some really cool people on the show in terms of something about your audience now. So obviously I've mentioned Java Crombie's been on there. Uh, we've just had Patrick Rothfuss on there. Uh, nice. people like Mike Cole have been on there, Chuck Wendig, Nora Jemison. There's loads of, loads of, uh, Cameron Hurley, loads of really cool people. Obviously, I apologize if you've been a guest on the show and I didn't just mention you. I do think you're also cool. I'm sorry <laughs> if I've offended on there. So anyway, yes, cool people come along and, and each episode is set in a different tea layer. So it might be that one episode is in a volcano or it might be on the back of a giant robot or a giant bird or it might be in another dimension or in the heart of the labyrinth or whatever. And 
Emma, my wife, who's also a, a fabulous writer, she will interview them and take tea and cake with them. And then after they've had the interview, they normally face some kind of peril or jeopardy. They have to survive in some <laughs> cool way. So it's part interview, part audio drama. And it's oh. quite sh- they're normally quite short. They're about 20 minutes to half an hour an episode. Um, they're all free to listen to. And if you go to teaandjeopardy.com or search for it, if you search for Tea and Jeopardy online, you'll almost certainly find us. Or if you go to my blog, you'll find links to it there or Emma's blog. So, yeah, it's, it's very silly. It's very fun. And, yeah, there's, there's lots of cool people there. And as I say, if you want to see what happens when Jarba Crombie meets a unicorn, I was going to say that probably is the most grimdark thing that happens, actually. It's not pretty. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say. Uh, Hugo nominated as well. Podcast. Yes. Yes. Twice now, actually. Um, Wow. Dare I say. So, yeah, last year we were nominated uh, and this year we were nominated. So, um, you know, fingers crossed. Very awesome to have you uh, on the show today. Where can people find out more about you? I'm on Twitter. If you want to follow me there, that's uh, at RumpeteWright. That's uh, right as in writing rather than left and right. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm findable on Facebook as well. And uh, my blog is www.runpetewright.com. Uh, so all of those places are good places to start. And I'm fairly friendly, so do feel free to come and say hi. I will normally say hi back. <laughs> <laughs> and if I don't, it's normally just because I've, you know, had an internet fail and not noticed. It's nothing personal. <laughs> so, you know, have another go. Excellent, Peter. Well, Peter Newman has been our guest. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, thank you very much for coming on. And we're definitely uh, keeping an eye out for everything you're doing. And and we hope you, you'll continue to do very well. So we're, we're rooting for you, for sure. Hooray! Thanks, guys. And a very special thanks for Peter Newman for coming on the show. Man, that was a great chat, Philip. Yes, I definitely enjoyed talking to Peter and learning more about his process and learning more about the vagrant and definitely looking forward to what he comes up with next. I'm definitely looking forward to finishing reading The Vagrant, and I'll be sure to post my review as well. And we wish Peter the best of luck in his literary career, and it'll definitely not be the last time that you hear about him on our show, for sure. Speaking of show, we've got some awesome guests coming your way. Our schedule is getting pretty packed with with guests uh, coming up. Uh, We've got Peter Fugazzato, grimdark author, coming on the show. We've got Dave DeBerg from South Africa. We have Adrian Collins, who's the editor-in-chief at Grimdark Magazine. He's going to be on the show. And coming this September, we have some very, very, very special guests. Uh, Who do we have coming on there, Philip? Well, uh, we have the one and only... R.A. Salvatore! Bob Salvatore. Uh, I I believe he is scheduled for August, but the podcast will actually air in September. Yes, it's part of the Arc Mage book tour for his new book he has coming out, which is continuing the Drist Doerden legacy. So we are absolutely 110% stoked to get R.A. Salvatore on the show. I would have never thought when we started this program that we would get somebody like him to join the lunacy that is the Grim Tidings podcast, but lo and behold, uh, he he volunteered to do it, and we are so looking forward to having Bob on the show. It's going to be awesome. Yes, definitely. Uh, 
he was a big influence on me uh, as a burgeoning young writer. So definitely looking forward to talking to him. But that's not it. We have uh, actually a lot of other guests that were we either have booked that we're not talking about just yet or that we're working on booking. But it's going to be pretty awesome, folks. So do stay tuned. Check out the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Download it. Leave us a review if you can. Or be sure to check us out at our website. We're at Facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast. And then you can find us on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Tweet us. Tweet. Retweet. Uh, re-retweet. Quote, quote, <laughs> quote re-anti-super-tweet. Yes, uh, all of those things. Exactly. The wonders of social media. But uh, thanks so much for listening to the show. Till next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see you next time. Next time.